great pleasure to uh, welcome uh, Olga Sigarelli, uh, who is not a stranger to uh, Oxford, having spent a little bit of time up in Thimbrook. Um, she's Professor of Neurology at the Institute of Neurology at University College. Uh, she did her medical degree in uh, Rome, University of Rome, and then in 1999 came over to the Institute of Oxford Neurology as a visiting research fellow, uh, undertook a PhD there, and uh, and then in 2008 was appointed reader in neurology and then subsequently professor. And as we'll see, her main interest is in, in, in imaging of MS, but particularly in relation to um, trials of treatment for patients with MS and uh, developing new therapies and how one uses imaging in, in terms of assessment of these patients. So, warm welcome to Oxford and look forward to your talk. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for inviting me. Uh, it's always a pleasure to come back to Oxford. In fact, at the end of my PhD, I worked uh, um, at the FIMRIB uh, on a part-time basis with Tim and Heidi. I had a very great time, so I'm very happy to come back. And so what um, I uh, chosen this title just to summarize some of the uh, latest uh, uh, studies that we have done to use imaging to uh, understand uh, me mechanisms of pathology in MS and also trying to um, apply to clinical uh, experimental studies to see whether um, we can obtain information about uh, the underlying uh, causes of uh, progressive MS. So on conventional spinal cord MRI, you see here longitudinal um, T2 and proton density scans. Um, we tend to see uh, in patients with MS focal uh, lesions that uh, involve uh, most often the upper cervical cord and appear hyper intense on T2 scans. On proton density scans, the um, visibility of these lesions is increased and uh, on a whole um, uh, spinal cord MRI, we can, especially in progressive cases, identify more than one uh, lesion. And usually, uh, the occurrence of multiple lesions in the spinal cord is associated with more advanced uh, cases of MS. When uh, uh, on a clinical scanning, we usually, in association to longitudinal uh, sequences, we also acquire axial views to identify the position of the lesions within the cord. So we can say this is more lateral or more anterior, lateral and posterior cord. And this uh, obviously is quite important uh, from a clinical point of view to try to correlate the position of this lesion with the clinical, with clinical signs. On pathology, um, these lesions appear to be quite extensive and have a similar uh, characteristic as to brain lesions. So brain lesions uh, involve the gray matter and do not respect the boundary between gray matter and white matter, so they tend to expand within from the gray matter within the white matter and vice versa. And the same uh, um, feature is visible in uh, spinal cord uh, lesion at post-mortem. So they do not respect the boundary. Some lesions do, others they don't, and they tend to extend into the adjacent uh, tissue. And then uh, this uh, post-mortem study was done by uh, Nottingham Group. Uh, they manually outline on post-mortem uh, lesions that were visible, and most of them were uh, mixed uh, gray matter and white matter, and there were some pure uh, gray matter lesions. And the interesting point of this study was that the degree of inflammation 
um, seems to be higher in the spinal cord lesions compared to uh, brain lesions. Um, and also, in general, gray matter demyelination seems to be more extensive than, what, than white matter demyelination. But I think the uh, key message is that the uh, spinal cord lesions have simi similar appearances to brain lesions, but possibly, pathologically, may have uh, different characteristics. On a high uh, field uh, scan, so here is a 4.7 uh, Tesla uh, image of a post-mortem spinal cord, the distinction between white matter and gray matter is, uh, very, uh, is very clear, and uh, the uh, pathological uh, histological staining uh, demonstrates a perfect uh, correspondence between, here you see pattern uh, obviously on uh, uh, MS case, perfect correspondence between uh, histology and MRI. So on the um, three Tesla MRI scan, we can't really um, see very well spinal collisions, but if you do higher field scanning, it's obvious that the lesion is there, it's just that we need to have a greater sensitivity, greater specificity, and higher resolution. So if you can think of your best sequence, highest resolution, and highest field, um, the lesion is visible with MRI, it's just that it's difficult to make it feasible in a clinical scanning time in a clinical setting. So collisions are present in the majority of patients with MS, and clinically they are important because do not, uh, they are not seen uh, even with normal aging. So it's so often useful for differential diagnosis to do a spinal cord imaging, because if we see uh, lesions in the spinal cord, it's definitely not related to small vessel disease or aging. So sometimes uh, the brain MRI can be difficult, you know, the, the um, radiological report may be difficult to interpret, but with the spinal cord imaging, you have lesions in this only MS, so there are no, especially young. Health uh, person, so it's uh, very useful for differential diagnosis. As I said, the similar features to brain lesions and core lesions are clinically relevant. In fact, for uh, the uh, clinicians in the audience, uh, you remember that the revision criteria uh, for uh, diagnosis of MS uh, suggests the uh, inclusion of a spinal cord um, as one of the locations that is necessary to, to uh, confirm dissemination in space of lesions. So this only happened in 2010. Before 2010, spinal cord wasn't uh, at all in the diagnostic criteria. In 2010, it was included. If a patient present with a spinal uh, clinical isolated syndrome, then uh, the spinal cord MRI is not included into the uh, diagnostic criteria. <coughs> you may know that later this year, there will be uh, a meeting to revise uh, further the uh, McDonald criteria and patient CIS, and we'll see what happens, what happens, going to happen to spinal cord imaging. But just as a point that the spinal cord has, the interest in spinal cord imaging has increased over time, and there's been a recognition of the clinical relevance of this technique. So why do we use advanced spinal cord imaging? Because if we can see better uh, and more clearly lesions, then we can improve <coughs> the uh, differential diagnosis. We can use it to understand the mechanisms of damage and repair. We can use it to monitor treatment response in clinical trials. And I have a couple of slides about the issues that we face when we're trying to apply spinal cord in uh, clinical trials. And then it's useful to clarify the heterogeneity related to MS. So sometimes you have patients with similar uh, clinical uh, deficits, but uh, <coughs> you can't explain these differences by only using MRI. And if we're using uh, spinal cord imaging, we can um, understand 
what is the basis for some of these differences. So it helps to explain uh, the residual, whatever is not explained by uh, brain uh, imaging. So there are challenges for the uh, more expert uh, in the audience about the challenges of brain ima of, uh, uh, imaging. This is probably quite familiar. So it's extremely small size, small at the cervical level, but even smaller at the thoracic level. So obviously this is much, much smaller than a brain uh, tissue, and therefore the scanning here is much more uh, technically difficult. There is cardiac <coughs> pulsation and breathing, which can cause motion artifacts, magnetic susceptibility of tissue uh, bone interface, uh, which causes image distortion. So all the imaging uh, developments, uh, technical advances, <coughs> have aimed at improving uh, um, the uh, quality of the imaging and overcome these major challenges. So what we've been trying to do is to develop new techniques for uh, identifying cord lesions that can be used uh, in a clinical setting. So on our uh, 3 Tesla uh, MS scanner, we're now running um, a FFE uh, sequence with the uh, voxel size, uh, which is uh, 0.5 by 0.5 by 5, only at C2, C3 level, so upper cervical cord. And the interesting um, observation is that it was possible to identify, I have better pictures later, uh, the gray matter uh, at this level. And we are currently on, uh, doing a study comparing the proton density and the T2, which is the standard clinical acquisition, with PSIR and STIR, which are two um, relatively newer techniques, to see whether they can, these two techniques can help uh, uh, in identifying uh, MS lesions. So there are some centers in the US that prefer to use PSIR, other <coughs> centers that prefer to use STIR. I think in the UK we tend to focus on PDC2, uh, but we'll, we're trying on the uh, MS scanners to see whether the um, inclusion of one of these two sequences can actually uh, be helpful uh, only uh, on clinical grounds. On uh, the research setting, what we have, we have used a combination of FFE and SEER to draw lesions. These were uh, drawn, lesions were drawn using a semi-automatic technique. And then the R of the lesion was multiplied by the slice thickness. So we, at C2, C3 level, so as I said, the upper cervical cord, we, we measured a total uh, lesion load in the cord. And we look at different uh, types of MS. And we found that in patients with secondary progressive MS, the, the lesion load was slightly uh, higher than in patients with primary progressive MS, and, uh, but the, and, and therefore the percentage of the spinal cord area covered by the lesion was slightly higher. But I think the bottom line is that the secondary progressive MS and primary progressive MS actually behave quite similarly in terms of lesion load. So you know, um, we do lesion load in brain, uh, for, lesion load uh, for brain uh, studies uh, routinely for clinical trials and research studies and research um, investigations. Why spinal cord uh, lesion load is um, much more um, rare. You haven't, you probably haven't seen just a few um, papers on this, but I think uh, the interesting. Uh, observation is that if we do a lesion load in the spinal cord, we can see some uh, good correlations with uh, disability. So we have this scale called EDSF to reflect uh, um, clinical disability, neurological disability in MS, which has its, uh, its limitations, but it's quite well known at the few scales. 
And we found there were quite good correlations between this lesion load and ADSS, which were also independent from cord atrophy. So what happened in the early phases of MS or in clinical isolated syndrome, non-spinal patients, the extent of spinal cord atrophy was quite minimal, actually. They were really quite healthy, normal-looking cord. Uh, but then if we look at the um, volume of the lesions in the cord, that was the main uh, uh, parameter that uh, explained the uh, variability in the EDSS compared to other uh, imaging measures. So this study from uh, um, UCSF has instead demonstrated that uh, we really have to focus on the gray matter of the spinal cord rather than uh, the whole uh, spinal cord atrophy or the white matter. So what they did, they did on the PSIR uh, scan, they did an automatic segmentation of the cord and then they manually outlined uh, the gray matter area. And they found that the relapsing MS had a smaller area than controls. Despite the fact there were no significant differences in the white matter area of the spinal cord, as expected, the smaller spinal cord gray matter area was seen in patients with progressive MS. So more advances, cases of MS had uh, showed the greatest atrophy localized in the gray matter. And also uh, demonstrated that when we look at, when they look at the um, multivariate models trying to explain the clinical disability, they found that the spinal cord gray matter area was the strongest correlate of disability. So they, they then um, look at the, the relative importance for EDSS of each measure, where they have spinal cord gray matter, brain gray matter, spinal cord white matter, grain white matter, and then uh, age and disease duration and so on. And they found that the gray matter of the spinal cord has the highest uh, importance for uh, EDSS. Then um, what we have done in London, we have looked at um, changes in the uh, diffusion parameters within the gray matter. And we found some differences between patients and controls and some differences between more advanced cases of MS and uh, relapsing MS. And we found there was a, a good correlation between this radial diffusivity, which is as you know, one of the parameters we can obtain by diffusion tensor imaging, measured within the gray matter, and uh, clinical uh, scale. So not only uh, the area of the gray matter of the spinal cord, but also the uh, tissue integrity is probably important for disability development. And what we're trying to do in this study, we're trying to do a very rough uh, first approach to um, BBM of uh, diffusion-weighted imaging, trying to look at changes outside the lesion. So you can see the resolution was uh, quite uh, poor, and this is actually a very old data set, 1.5 Tesla scanner. But it was really just a proof of principle. So we tried to um, remove uh, the effect of the lesion. And we found that there were changes uh, in diffusion uh, measures outside the lesions, which were not visible on uh, conventional imaging. So it's uh, really very similar to what happens in the brain, where we have uh, lesional tissues. And uh, on MRI, what looks non-lesional, in fact, has been established to be um, pathologically abnormal. So what we call it normal appealing white matter in the brain. And in the spinal cord, probably something similar is happening. We have lesional tissue, non-lesional tissue on conventional MRI, which in fact has pathological abnormalities. And when we look at the pathological abnormalities through uh, imaging, 
and we uh, trying to establish a correlation between uh, these um, ab abnormalities outside the lesions and clinical disability, we have a quite uh, good correspondence. Demonstrated that there may be uh, a role for uh, white matter pathology or gray matter pathology outside lesions in determining uh, clinical disability. So in conclusion, if we have uh, spinal cord, uh, some parameters like spinal cord lesion load, gray matter volume of the spine, gray matter pathological changes that uh, you can uh, reflect using your imaging, uh, like diffusion imaging, changes outside the lesions, again, it can be detected using diffusion imaging, are all factors contributing to disability in MS and can explain heterogeneity in clinical disability. So what we have done a study I'm not showing here where we look at a patient with high uh, disability and low disability, but they are matched by lesion load in the spinal cord and in the brain. So in theory, we're not considering what happens to the functional uh, reorganization and the functional uh, uh, capacity of, of, the, of the, the CNS. But if we just look at the match uh, two groups uh, by lesion load in the brain and the spine, but these two groups have differences in the clinical disability, the, the difference can be explained by differences in um, measures, advanced measures of the spinal cord. So these measures can help to explain why patients with MS uh, are different clinically despite the fact that they may have a similar extent of uh, lesions. So you may have seen uh, schemes like this before. Um, this is a representation of what we are the major uh, mechanisms of neurodegeneration in MS, but some of these mechanisms are common to other neurodegenerative disorders. Um, so you, uh, there is an inflammation um, in uh, CNS that uh, is associated with um, some release of uh, nitrooxide and other uh, oxygen species that uh, attack the mitochondria create uh, a energy deficit, energy failure in the, in the neurons with consequent uh, increased uh, sodium concentration in the cell, activation of uh, uh, calcium pathways for which there is an increased concentration of calcium in the cells, activation of proteolytic enzymes and neuronal cell death. So this is what has been demonstrated to be um, uh, typical of neurodegenerative <coughs> phases of MS. This occurs in MS more in progressive phases than in early phases. But this is, could be like uh, a scheme, as I said, that you could apply also to other uh, neurodegenerative disease. And the advantage of imaging, obviously the brain is easy, but the same is applied to the spinal cord imaging, is that we can try to target each of these steps. So we have imaging techniques that focus on the inflammation, some that are trying to detect the energy failures, some trying to focus on the increased sodium concentration of the cells, and uh, some that are more sensitive <coughs> to the neuronal loss and uh, axonal loss. So to focus on inflammation, you know that in the brain, uh, in MS patients, uh, there's been uh, quite a lot of uh, attention to the uh, meningeal inflammation. So, so there have been studies demonstrating there is a quite extensive uh, meningeal inflammation, especially in progressive phases, that is associated to quite extensive uh, uh, subpial demyelination. So what we did with the, with the spinal cord, we uh, took uh, MTR uh, 
images and we're trying to uh, focus on the outer um, layer of the spinal cord where we expect to be the subvial tissue and we had to look at the MTR of this region in MS patients uh, compared with controls and we found that there was a significant reduced MTR uh, in patients when, when uh, compared to healthy subjects and the lowest was in progressive MS. So it took quite a while to develop this uh, technique so that was done in association with the physics team for UCL and, and the, uh, uh, the CIMIC at UCL and you know the, the interesting was that in um, patients was, I mean the difference between patients and controls was uh, quite uh, uh, significant despite the fact that on conventional uh, and it looked absolutely identical and the extent, uh, the ex uh, extent of atrophy was actually uh, not, not, not very significant so was some intrinsic changes occurring in these regions uh, we hoped uh, to uh, reduce the effect of partial volume of course but the same would have been in healthy controls and these were patients without spinal cord lesions so basically the conclusion was that uh, in the relapsing remitting MS and CIS uh, there were uh, uh, some abnormalities in the outer regions of the spinal cord which were, uh, as I said, uh, significant if, despite the fact that there was no significant cold atrophy visible. And one possible explanation, but obviously this has to be proven by um, histological uh, correlative studies, is that these changes in MTR may reflect inflammation in the PR mother and demyelination in subpial white matter, which is, as I said, a phenomenon well known happening in the brain, but uh, in, the, in the spinal cord hasn't been demonstrated yet. Uh, as you remember from the scheme, there is quite an importance of um, mitochondrial function in MS. It is known that one of the steps that leads to neurodegeneration is uh, uh, mitochondrial dysfunction. And unfortunately, uh, MRI-wise, we are not very well equipped to pick up uh, mitochondrial abnormalities. So this is probably, I've listed here what are our uh, best options. So we, um, we would favor the use of MR spectroscopy, NIA, NIA um, uh, and acetyl aspartate is probably the most specific marker for neurons and, um, and has probably high, has a high specificity but uh, does not only reflect uh, metabolism but also reflect a uh, number of cells. Uh, so any, uh, uh, um, just to give you a, a, an idea of NAA is produced by uh, mitochondria and then is um, transported uh, through the axons and moved to the oligodendrocytes where it is used to synthesize myelin. Uh, so because of this, because it's pretty much localized within the neurons and produced by the neurons, uh, reduced NAA has been demonstrated to correlate with neuronal loss, uh, but also uh, neuronal metabolic dysfunction. <coughs> we have these dual components uh, of uh, NAA uh, measurements. And uh, brain studies have demonstrated that the uh, percentage of brain, uh, of brain axonal loss versus uh, uh, brain and neuronal metabolism uh, reflected by the same amount of NAA may change according to different disease stages. So it's not a, a strict uh, and fixed uh, relationship. So there have been uh, a few studies because of technical difficulties. Can you imagine if it's difficult to do conventional imaging or high resolution imaging of the spinal cord? Imagine if we want to do spectroscopy of the spinal cord. So the, because of the technical ch challenges, the studies are relatively few. 
but the, 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 good, the, the main message is that they all demonstrated that reduced NAA in the cord in patients were compared to healthy subjects. Some of the studies used uh, focused on the normal appearing tissue, so the tissue outside the lesions, other studies uh, focus on chronic lesions. So basically this is confirmed that what we see in the spinal cord in MS is the same what we see in the brain. There is a reduction of NAA indicating <coughs> neuronal loss and neuronal me me metabolism um, dysfunction. Um, in this study what we did, we took patients at acute onset of a spinal cord lesion. So this is a little cord lesion at uh, C3 in a patient with MS. We then uh, did a single box spectroscopy and we measured uh, metabolites. If you do brain uh, spectroscopy, you may not be too impressed by this spectra, but this is actually quite good quality considering <coughs> that we are doing this in the spinal cord. So we then look at the uh, concentration of the estimates of the concentration of each metabolite and we found that NAA differentiated very well patients versus controls. So the onset of an acute spinal cord lesion, there is a, a massive reduction of uh, NAA. So and then what we did, we carried on following up these patients over time. So we called them back after one month, after three months, and after six months. And we saw changes of NAA. At an individual level, obviously, it was difficult to find any uh, significant pattern. So then we grouped patients who improved versus patients who did not improve. The majority of patients with a clinical relapse due to spinal collisions over six months tend to clinically improve. And these were the patients who showed the most significant change in the NAA towards a steady recovery of NAA concentration over time. So what we found is that controls tend to be quite stable, perhaps a bit of a loss of NAA, but not significant. This is healthy subject. When we look at patients with, uh, on, at the onset of spinal collisions, they were all had reduced NAA compared with the baseline of healthy controls. A further decrease at one month, and this was uh, occurring in both groups, patients who clinically recovered and patients who did not recover. And then an increase at three months, and then patients who clinically recovered at a further increase at six months, were those who did not recover ended up with uh, a lower NAA than when they started. And the, I'm not showing here uh, what happens to the spinal cord atrophy. So these patients have obviously a swollen cord at the onset, so they have an increased uh, cord area, but over time they have a progressive uh, uh, reduction of uh, spinal cord area. And at the end uh, they had a significant cord atrophy compared with healthy subjects. So what happens, if, even patients who clinically recover, that's a significant cold atrophy. So while we have an ongoing uh, neurodegenerative uh, disease that uh, uh, is accentuated by inflammation, so post-inflammatory relapses, there was a faster development of spinal cord atrophy, at the same time, we had this improvement in NAA concentration. And if you put these two things together, how can the NAA improve if the if you have uh, observed the reduction of cord atrophy, you don't have uh, you know, a regeneration of these neurons. So one possibility was that, obviously, when you try to put them together, was that you had an increase <coughs> in the mitochondrial metabolism, which uh, has been uh, demonstrated in animal studies to be one of the mechanisms of repair, of tissue repair in MS. And just to make the point that in uh, brain studies, spectroscopy, spectroscopy brain study, the same behavior has been demonstrated over 
time. So there is a, a first a dip of NAA uh, early on after the event, and then over time the slow recovery. And this is good. And at the same time, if you have an association with uh, a measure that indicates neurodegeneration, you maybe say that uh, that you have um, a, a technique to pick up changes in NAA that reflect improved uh, mitochondrial function. Obviously, spectroscopy can give you other uh, in interesting uh, metabolites that uh, are reflective of different uh, pathological mechanisms. So we looked at the myonositol and uh, Jackie uh, Pallas uh, from Oxford sent us a couple of patients for this study, so these are uh, obviously much more uh, rare patients to see in that MS patients, and sometimes the differential diagnosis between MS and NMO is difficult. They clinically may present with similar um, characteristics. And so um, the, the hypothesis that we wanted to test is in this study, we say, okay, so we know that the NMO is uh, primarily an astrocyte disease, so there is a, a reduction in uh, astrocytic uh, density, while MS we have increased uh, gliotic response. So they probably say, okay, why don't we measure uh, myonositol, which is a good marker of astrocytic response, and see what happens when we distinguish MS patients from NMO. And we found that NMO had, as expected, a very low level of myonositol compared with healthy controls, while patients had higher, patients with MS had higher increase of myonositol compared to NMO. So this was a, a very nice marker that uh, we uh, proposed could help uh, the differential diagnosis uh, between uh, these two groups whenever we look at patients with cord lesions in the upper cervical cord. Uh, we, have, we are now trying to move this to a clinical setting and see what happens uh, where, if we can add the spectroscopy of the upper cervical cord uh, in patients with NMO um, or suspected NMO that are attended the clinical uh, scanner to see whether this can help the differential diagnosis. But obviously, because of technical uh, challenges, it's very difficult to do this clinically. Um, and you know, this sequence for uh, spinal cord spectroscopy was about 25 minutes. So if you have to put this on top of everything else you have to do clinically, it's quite challenging. And if patients get tired and they move, uh, you have basically no signal. So it's high risk, uh, high payback probably, but you know, maybe just more useful for very selective cases uh, rather than uh, um, more wild use of uh, clinical uh, resources. Uh, in one of these steps uh, in the neurodegenerative pathway is increased intracellular sodium. In post-mortem studies demonstrated that uh, uh, neurons uh, tend to uh, present some swelling um, in, uh, in MS, but there is also increased uh, uh, extracellular space and with imaging um, in, the, in the brain, we have demonstrated there is increased uh, so total sodium concentration in MS when compared with healthy subjects, and the sodium higher is higher in uh, patients with lesions compared with patients without lesions. When we're trying to do this in the spinal cord, <coughs> uh, ob obviously uh, much more challenging by single voxel of sodium imaging in the spinal cord, we found the patient with MS had higher sodium concentration, especially if they had lesions, compared with healthy subjects. So now, that at the moment, we are using total sodium concentration as uh, parameters of neurodegeneration, because we can't distinguish between intracellular 
and extracellular sodium. And if you know a bit of uh, physiology, you know that intracellular sodium has much lower concentration than extracellular sodium. So in fact, we don't know well, if the increase of sodium concentration that we're observing is due to increase of the intracellular component or increase of the extracellular component. Maybe both, or maybe only one of them, or maybe different according to disease types. But uh, the same happens with the brain. We have increased the total sodium concentration, and we don't know whether it's intracellular or extracellular. So at the moment, this is sort of a technique that we can use in addition to brain atrophy, or to spinal cord atrophy, to detect uh, or to, to reflect a general amount of neurodegeneration. And there is a lot of development uh, in the uh, physics uh, uh, field uh, trying to combine this total sodium imaging with more advanced uh, diffusion uh, weighted imaging or diffusion models, try to distinguish between the intracellular component and the extracellular component. <coughs> Some of, uh, groups uh, in the US have done it using very high field. Um, one of the uh, physicists uh, at UCL is trying to do it on a 3 Tesla scanner by, as I said, combining uh, diffusion models with uh, sodium imaging. And then finally, at the end, we have uh, the death of the uh, neurons, which uh, is the major uh, contributor to disability progression in MS. How do we detect this? So they have uh, uh, the best uh, and most common way of doing this is just to calculate uh, spinal cord atrophy. So this is one technique that's been developed in Amsterdam to look at the upper cervical cord area. They call it MUCA. I don't know if there are Italians in the audience, but this is cow. So <laughs> quite unfortunate choice. <laughs> but you know, it's a good way to of remembering it. So if we look at the MUCA scans, um, the measurements, patients with progressive MS at lower measure compared with healthy subjects and compared with um, relapsing remitting cord. And when they repeated the observation over time, they found that there is a significant development of spinal cord atrophy in MS over one year and two years, especially in progressive cases compared to relapsing cases. This is exactly what's happening in the brain, and the same phenomenon is in the spine. So you see in the brain, MS patients develop atrophy at the rate of about 0.5% 1% a year. In the spinal cord, the rate is slightly higher, it's 1.5-2%. There are some studies that said in the spinal cord you may have an atrophy rate up to 3%. But that depends on what type of progressive patients you're going to include. And spinal cord atrophy is really clinically relevant. After 20 years, we found that the cord atrophy is the best predictor of clinical changes. This came from a large magnet. Uh, which is a multi-center European study where we pull together a lot of uh, uh, spinal cord images to demonstrate probably something that we, we knew, I mean, it was going to happen, that the major determinant of long-term disability is, in fact, the uh, integrity and the health of the spinal cord. And what the uh, group from Massimo Filippi in Milan is trying to do is trying to map the, um, the location of uh, spinal cord atrophy in the spinal cord, uh, spinal cord atrophy regionally in the cervical cord. So you know in, in brain uh, studies we uh, routinely do uh, VBM to localize regions of most significant uh, loss of volume and uh, they are trying to uh, move the field forwards to do uh, mapping of um, spinal cord atrophy, regional spinal cord atrophy. 
And what Massimo has found that if we do the voxel-based method of regional distribution of atrophy, uh, there are part certain regions such as the posterior part of the cord, where there are the posterior columns, uh, lateral parts of the cord, they are more affected by uh, brain atrophy. But also, uh, this uh, was the um, regional atrophy was quite extensive throughout the whole cord and uh, mainly in the progressive phases of MS. Obviously, no, you may have questions about uh, the technical limitations of, such a of this type of approach, uh, but nevertheless, I think it's quite a nice step towards uh, uh, a better understanding of location of atrophy. So, uh, so in the brain, we tend to do whole brain atrophy measurements, and, but then we know that there are certain regions that drive uh, the atrophy uh, development more than others. And I think probably the same happening for the spinal cord. Rather than everything, everything becoming atrophic at the same rate at the same time, it's more likely that there are certain uh, areas which are uh, more likely to develop atrophy than others. And maybe these are becoming more evident in the more uh, aggressive and progressive phases of MS. The recent study that we have done, we're trying to look at patients with early primary progressive MS. So this was a group of patients recruited within the first five years from onset of the disease. And we're trying to do uh, Q-space imaging and uh, mass spectroscopy of the uh, upper spinal cord. And we found some interesting changes. I think the uh, most interesting um, message of this study was that there was a, a difference in glutamate glutamine between uh, healthy subjects and primary progressive patients. So patients had a reduced value of glutamine, uh, glutamate concentration compared with healthy subjects. There were also several associations with clinical disability. And in the end, uh, um, we concluded <coughs> that possibly uh, reduced neuronal integrity, demyelination, and abnormalities in the glutamate pathway uh, are correlated with uh, clinical changes. The interesting group uh, is because the spinal cord uh, was not atrophic. So we look um, on conventional imaging in most of the patients with like healthy, healthy spinal cord. Despite that, when we try, then when we move to uh, using advanced techniques, uh, was clear there was quite a pathological uh, spinal cord. So early, we concluded with the early uh, spinal cord neurodegeneration in uh, early phases of MS. So as you know, as, uh, brain atrophy is commonly used uh, as outcome measure in clinical trials uh, in progressive MS phase two trials, not phase three, phase two trials. So there is a quite a lot of interest because of the clinical relevance of spinal cord atrophy, which I hope I have convinced you about. There's quite an interest of trying to use the spinal cord atrophy as a secondary outcome measure for phase three trial and primary outcome measure for phase two trials. So we have done this study in a small group of progressive patients. We have an updated version where we have a larger group. And we calculated the spinal cord, the cross-sectional area in patients and healthy subjects. And then we repeated the measurements after one year and after two years. And we found that a sample size, if you want to do a phase two trial, primary progressive MS, you want to have an effect size of 50%, which could be optimistic. So let's go for a 30% treatment effects, the sample size in primary progressive MS could be uh, 300 patients, which is feasible. If you look at patients with established secondary progressive MS, so patients with very advanced disease, they are not moving much anymore because they have already accumulated a lot of disability and they are not continually progressing at the same rate as early primary progressive MS, the sample size becomes much higher. 
so probably not really feasible. So if you keep in mind these 300 patients for an early cohort of early progressive MS, you can see that when you move to a real data, <coughs> things become really complicated. So this is uh, the uh, phase three uh, clinical trial of INFORMS, which is the use of fingolimod in patients with progressive MS. We have done these calculations in London and we found that the sample size to find the uh, power of 80 for a, a treatment effect of 50% is um, really unachievable. Uh, the main uh, problems with the um, spinal cord atrophy in this study was the methodological variability between centers. Uh, so techniques were not uh, fully standardized, there were uh, changes in the uh, scanner, hardware, upgrade across centers with a larger multi-center studies. Um, so although for a single center, which you could think may be investigated or led study, phase two trial, the spinal cord atrophy is a possible <coughs> outcome measure, I think that for phase three trials, uh, it's probably becoming uh, more challenging, unless a considerable effort is uh, put into the standardization and development of the technique. So, I so this slide just summarizes some of the challenges for measurements, uh, brain volume calculation, but I put it here anyway because I thought most of them probably also affect the spinal cord uh, uh, volume calculation. So uh, absolutely scaling error, distortion corrections, uh, contrast changes, uh, and all of these factors can outweigh MS atrophy effects. So some of these can cause one or two percent changes. And as I said before, spinal cord atrophy rate measured about 0.5% a year in MS. So this is, you know, each of these can do one or two percent change. So well outweighed uh, the biological effect of MS. So obviously this is all uh, quite uh, important to keep in mind um, if we want to move to spinal cord atrophy as uh, outcome measure of clinical trials. So what we want to do in future uh, continue with technical developments uh, to have uh, shorter scanners uh, techniques that are more pathologically specific and they can be uh, informative in the clinical setting. Obviously, uh, treatment of progressive MS is quite an unmet need, um, so there is a lot of attention towards the development of clinical trials for progressive MS and spinal cord imaging because of the clinical relevance could be quite a useful outcome measure provided that all the challenges are uh, overcome. Um, ideally, we want to have um, longitudinal studies to see whether some of these measures can predict recovery and can explain a clinical progression. I'm personally interested in combining spectroscopy with other uh, techniques to see whether we can uh, fully understand the CNS plasticity. So there's a lot uh, going on outside structural imaging, outside metabolic imaging, so all functional imaging, which is, I haven't touched it at all, but this is, I think, uh, a new <laughs> seminar, completely different seminar for fMRI at the spinal cord, whether you believe this is feasible. Uh, so if you can think of combining these techniques together, you can try to capture all the functional structural changes happening in the cord. And then the obvious question, what happens at the high field, the ultra high field? This is useful for spinal cord imaging. We are trying to look at spinal cord techniques that uh, are focusing more on the thoracolumbar spine 
we have uh, used FFE with some adaptation just to the lower part of the thoracic cord, upper lumbar cord. Uh, we um, look at the semi-automatic segmentation of the gray matter, and we found that this is quite um, interesting a pilot study to demonstrate that this is, could be quite an interesting uh, area to uh, further develop. You may be aware if you do spectroscopy of this work that um, Henning is doing in Zurich, uh, trying to repeat measurements and combine uh, spectra to obtain not only NAA, which was the marker I showed you about, but many other metabolites which are really interesting physiologically, like GABA, aspartate, glutathione and stuff. So at the moment this has been trialed, um, as I said, it's not technically challenging, but the information we could obtain from these techniques is really uh, massive. Ideally, this is what we want. We want to combine spine and brain. This is one of my favorite slides. Uh, Giuliani sent it to me. So, you know, I, I, if you could think of combining multi-shot, uh, combining a technique that then allows you to perform uh, analysis uh, that look together the whole CNS and not, not continue to look at different uh, um, subtypes and subgroups, it's really difficult to put it together. So then uh, Julian sent me this, so this was last year, and I'm quite proud of this new scanner, and I sent this one. I, thought I was quite proud as well, you know, this is not bad, it's our three Tesla, 15 minutes, a C2, quite nice uh, delineation of the, of the gray matter. So do we really need a high, very high field for MRS patients? I don't know. Final cord, the seven Tesla is very challenging. Uh, I don't know whether clinically this could be proven to be useful, and probably clinical trials even less likely. So the, these are all people that work at the uh, Queen Square MS centers, and um, thank you for your attention. Thank you.